All right. Welcome to day 335 of Journey Through Scripture. Uh, today, we are going to be in Daniel chapter 7 through 8, verse 14, and then 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 27. Okay, we are actually 30 days out from being through, being done. Um, so congratulations. For those of you who have followed thus far, I know it's been a rewarding journey for me, and uh, the hope is to finish strong. So, okay, we get to Daniel chapter 7, and this uh, we're, we're starting to wade into parts of Daniel that are particularly challenging. In fact, if I'm being completely transparent, this is the part of Scripture that probably gives me the most um, trepidation, <laughs> where I, uh, there's a bunch, there's a lot of parts where I have to say, you know, where we're basically interpretations that we follow, we follow uh, solely on the basis of uh, probability. Like it's not, we can't be certain of what things mean, but we can say, you know, I think that on balance, it's probably this way or that way. Well, this section of Daniel, um, what we are about to embark on now and in the next few days is very much like that. Uh, but that's kind of the nature of the beast, pun intended, um, that when you're in apocalyptic literature, um, some of the the things that are uh, the, that are symbolized and that the text is communicating, it is sometimes very difficult to tell. And not simply because it's hard to figure out like, well, what symbol, like what does this symbol stand for and what does that symbol stand for? But also, like what in this is a symbol that stands for something and what else, what, what is part of just like, you know, the, the image that it's painting, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's just part of the the picture, but you know, you're over reading it. If you try to assign this to something that, um, uh, that uh, in the real world, as it were, we, we might say. Okay. So this occurs in the first year of Belshazzar. So now remember, um, Belshazzar at the end of what we read yesterday, right, was um, was toppled for his reign is toppled. Actually, not the end of yesterday, but the end of chapter five, um, giving way to the reign of the individual who is called Darius the Mede. So, but here we're back in the first year of that guy's reign. So we're actually rewinding in time. We we get the end of his reign first, and then we get this stuff and. Also, keep in mind of how Daniel was introduced in chapter 5, right? That the queen or the queen mother came up to Belshazzar and was like, hey, I heard of a—there's this guy. I don't—it I don't, doesn't sound like you know about him, but we should we should get him in here to interpret this stuff for us. Um, so Daniel's kind of like in the background. But here it's like we find out that Daniel actually has been very busy during this time when he is apparently diminished in prominence a little bit among the wise men of Babylon. And here— Daniel saw a dream. So a bunch of other people have been having visions and stuff so far. Now it's Daniel's turn to dream. And the visions of his head that he saw as he lay in his bed, um, this is uh, very similar to the language of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's vision of this, the, the, the Colossus, the statue. That language is used in 2 verse 28, as well as Nebuchadnezzar's uh, letter to people, right? The visions of my head. Uh, chapter 4, verse 10. And we're told that Daniel wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So Daniel here apparently is has has recorded this, and and perhaps we might say that this is uh, the, this could be 
the incorporation of what he wrote down into the text of Daniel itself. Notice that a lot of it is in the first person, and that's certainly, I think, how we're, we're to understand that implication. So he has this dream, right? And he sees the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea, the great sea, the Mediterranean sea. And, um, this idea of like the four winds, we've, we, we encounter that co- that concept a little bit in the Bible. Um, here, I don't think we need to read too much into it, but it does seem to indicate that like God is on the move, something divine, something of divine significance is happening. Uh, the last time we saw it is in Ezekiel 37 verse nine. And that's where like the wind starts stirring when the, the, the Ruach, the spirit is about to enter into the, the, the bones that are scattered throughout the valley. So the sea is getting stirred up, and then he sees four beasts coming out of the sea. Now, at this point, um, it's probably, I've kind of gone back and forth as to how to describe what I think is going on here, um, both here and in chapter 8. And I think the best approach is to just give you a little bit of an overview, a big picture first of what happens in chapter 7. So you get these four beasts rising out of the Mediterranean Sea. And in verses 1 through 8, um, you notice that the fourth of these beasts is worse is worse than and has than all the others, and it has a prominent little horn that is making more trouble than pretty much anything else in the chapter. Uh, then in verses 9 through 12, God, who is here called the Ancient of Days, judges all four of the beasts, meeting out especially brutal destruction to the fourth apparently on account of its little horn, right? And the other ones, their lives are prolonged for a season, which uh, probably means they, they're they like absorbed into the other uh, other other kingdoms um, that just kind of take over them. In, uh, in verse, verses 13 and 14 then, etern- uh, the eternal kingdom that has been promised is given to one like a son of man, and then uh, Daniel goes and he asks one of the individuals standing with him, who's probably one of the 10,000 times 10,000 who are standing before the Ancient of Days, uh, what all this means. And in verses 17 and 18, he tells him, he says, these four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever forever and ever. I love the way it puts that, forever, forever and ever. Um, But then Daniel asks for some more info on that fourth beast and and its horns. Uh, Again, clearly like the focus, like that's where in both this chapter and the next, that horn is very important. Uh, And as part of this question in verse 21, Daniel gives us more detail about what the little horn is up to. He says, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. So that's like part of his question. And then the answer that he receives in verses 24 through 27 is that the fourth beast is a kingdom from which ten kings shall arise. Um, and the ten kings are um, symbolized by the ten horns of that beast. The eleventh is king is a little horn, and he will put down three kings, it says. And a couple other things that this horn is going to do. He is going to speak words against the Most High, so blasphemy, right? 
he shall wear out the saints of the Most High. And they're wearing out is more than just like tired, like you just ran a 10K or something. It's closer to ruin, like a, a worn out garment is the, the word is, is used elsewhere of. Um, he shall think to change the times and the law, and the saints of the Most High shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So that's what the horn is going to do. Ultimately, however, he will be judged by God and his dominion, quote, consumed and destroyed, unquote. Uh, the kingdom, dominion, and greatness under the kingdoms, under the whole heavens, shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, and the Most High kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, the, the way that things wrap up there does sound very similar to the rock that is not hewn by human hands, which destroys the kingdoms represented in Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2. But I will say that it's somewhat of an open question as to whether or not everything needs to correspond between these two visions. Like, there's four things that represent four kingdoms, but does that necessarily mean that it's it's uh, framing things in exactly the same way? So that's a bit of an open question. The point to note for now is that a very big deal is made about that little horn on the final beast whose actions will be blasphemous against God and terrible for God's people. Okay, so now back to the beginning of chapter 17. So you've got these four beasts. You've got one that is a lion with wings. Uh, you've got another that is a bear and it's got three ribs in its teeth. You've got another that's a leopard with uh, four wings and uh, four heads. And then you've got the fourth, which is not described in terms of like a known animal, but it, it does have features that are described. And that's the fierce one where the, the little horn eventually kind of uh, comes over. And, and um, the, it's probably also worth noting that in uh, throughout these, this pass this passage, uh, we probably shouldn't make too much about whether it's speaking of, quote, kings or, quote, kingdoms. So, like, verse 17, for example, these four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever, right? So that's what we're told these four beasts are, but throughout the passage, uh, kings slash kingdoms seems to be a little bit of a of a fluid uh, thing. Uh, so, in other words, like we're not just speaking about the kings, but the kingdoms they represent. So, while the the first one, the lion, uh, clearly represents Nebuchadnezzar, uh, it's also fair to say this is Babylon, the the whole kingdom that that um, that he represents. Um. So the second and third kingdom, though, are more tricky to identify. But here, um, I we might ask, we might start with asking the same question that we asked in chapter two: Are Media and Persia distinct, or are they one entity? So is it like the second, uh, the second beast is Media and the third is Persia, or uh, is the second beast the the Medo-Persian Empire? Remember, we asked that of the chest of silver in the midsection of bronze. Um, if you do take them as distinct, so the, the, the second one being Media, the, the, the third being Persia, then the four heads you would take then of the leopard, you would see it as just like going out in all directions, 
like, um, you know, awareness of all directions, seeing in all directions, similar to how you have like the four winds in verse two. Um, that would then make the fourth beast, the Macedonian empire under Alexander the Great. Um, now, as I've said, I find this way of reading these uh, things unlikely since Daniel seems to view Media and Persia as one empire, not two. And we see that in 529, um, in chapter 6, verse 8, verse 12, verse 15. And in a minute, I'll actually mention the statement that kind of settles that to my mind. Um, so now, keeping that in mind, the, so we're, we're asking the question, so if we don't think that those two are distinct kingdoms, um, can we be helped a little bit with chapter 8? So let me go ahead now to chapter 8. So in chapter 8, he sees a, a ram. A ram is the first thing that he sees, and this is another vision of his. And uh, now, now note that in chapter 7, what did it say of the bear? Besides the, the ribs in its teeth, um, it, uh, it said that one side of it is raised up, right? That's in verse 5. Now, if you go to chapter 8, verse 2, the ram that he sees in his next vision has two horns, and note that one is higher than the other, which strongly suggests that the bear of chapter 7 and the ram of chapter 8 are the same. And then, if you go to eight chap, uh, chapter 8, verse 20, which is, um, I believe, in tomorrow's reading, uh, it says this, because there's parts of this that are decoded by the, the interpreters in the text, and it says this, As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. So that one ram with the two horns, one lifted higher, this is Media and Persia envisioned together, which is why I would take the bear beast in chapter 7, which one side is higher than the other, corresponding to that as the kings of Media and Persia. And um, yeah, so, um, and, and now regarding, so talking about that bear, uh, the, you got the, the three ribs in its mouth. Uh, this probably, I think most people would say that this represents like conquered peoples, and um, it either is that three is just like a nice round number, or it could be that uh, the the Medo-Persian Empire, at least in these early stages, had three. Its three probably most prominent campaigns are against Egypt, Lydia, and then Babylon. So it could be those three, or it could again, it could just be a nice round number. Um, okay. So now think back, go back, go up to chapter eight. I'm sorry, but I think that this is the actually the clearest way to explain how what I think is going on here. So we got that ram, and then that ram is challenged by a goat with what it says a conspicuous, or it's also called a great horn between its eyes, and it defeats the ram, breaking its horns. Right, and then in eight twenty one, which again is the interpretive part of this, um, the goat is the king of Greece, which would be Alexander the Great, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Notice there the uh, the the king and kingdom being used kind of interchange. They're both called the king, right? But it probably you should say the goat is the kingdom of Greece and the, the horn is the first king. So technically, I guess the horn is Alexander the Great. Um, now, um, the the great conspicuous horn then is then broken on this goat, and four conspicuous horns now grow in its place, okay? 
and uh, remember what was one of the most dominant features of the the third beast, the leopard beast in chapter seven? Well, it's it's four heads. Okay, so now historically, what happens is that um, uh, when Alexander the Great died, uh, his empire is divided between his four generals: Antipater, Lysimachus, Seleucus the first, and Ptolemy the first. Ptolemy is P.T. Uh, kind of like a pterodactyl, and uh, and, and then uh, so you know, and then again in the explanation of this part, this is made clear, right? So in in eight twenty two, as for the horn that was broken in the place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power, right? None of them are as great as Alexander the Great, we might say. Um, again, note that the leopard, which I'm saying corresponds to this, has four heads. Um, so I, I would say that they, that the, the, again, the leopard beast in chapter seven represents the same thing that the four replacement horns are explicitly said to rep to represent in chapter eight, the four rulers among whom Alexander's empire was divided. So the bear beast of chapter seven represents the same thing that the ram of chapter eight represents, which is the Medo-Persian empire. And then the leopard beast of chapter 7 represents the same thing that the goat of chapter 8 represents, the Macedonian Empire under Alexander the Great. Notice also how both have four objects protruding from them, which I already mentioned, right? The leopard's heads uh, and the goat's horns. And um, again, I contend that in both cases, those correspond to the division of Alexander's empire after his death. Uh, note also how at this point, the first three kingdoms correspond to the upper parts of the statue of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two. Um, again, we're, you know, does, does the statue completely correspond to these visions? Possibly, but I don't think it needs to be. Um, okay, now let's talk about this tricky fourth beast. Okay, now again, it's not associated with any particular animal, it's just described as a beast. So, still comparing the visions of chapters 7 and 8, we find that both feature a little horn, which, as I noted earlier, is emphasized in the explanation of the vision of chapter 7 in verses 24 and 26, and the little horn of chapter 8's goat is also given a lot of attention and is explained in similar terms when the interpretation of that vision is given in chapter 8, verses 23 through 25. But let's deal with that first um, beast, that fourth beast in chapter seven first. What does this final beast represent? Okay, if now if we're thinking in terms of successive world empires, Rome would seem to commend herself. And I suggested that the uh, the legs and the feet of the statue in chapter two um, is Rome. Okay, um, now I could be wrong about that. And it, there, it is possible to make it say the exact same thing that I'm going to say about this this one, um, but you know, and so it, it it could be that it could be the same thing as as this vision. But putting that aside for the moment, uh, Rome. So could this be Rome? Well, if so, then what do the ten horns, which verse twenty four says are ten kings, refer to? I mean, if we're looking at like the entire history of like just the western part of the Roman Empire throughout history, it's ruled by by more than eighty emperors. Um, 
and Jesus is born during the reign of the first, Caesar Augustus, so we probably wouldn't work to say just the kings prior to Jesus. Um, and how are we to think of three things whom some little horn just plucks up or puts down in coming to power, verses 8 and 24? And who, then, is the king represented by the little king? Nero or, you know, some infamous uh, persecutor of the church or something? Uh, for these reasons, it has become quite popular among those who hold the view that the final beast is Rome to say that this part of the vision has yet to be fulfilled, like even today, and uh, refers to um, the Roman Empire either extended much later into church history, so maybe it has been fulfilled, but in the last couple hundred years, like maybe the Protestant Reformation or something, um, or much more commonly today, that the event, uh, it will be fulfilled in the events surrounding the second coming of Christ. Now, this, this is where a lot of modern Bible prophecy sleuths will often talk about, like, a powerful, united future government or perhaps a new world order, right? The idea is that a coalition of ten nations represented here by ten horns will come together, and out of them and perhaps leading them will be the figure known as the Antichrist, the little horn. Now, what do we think about this? Well, I can tell you what I think about this. Uh, given the difficulty of, of identifying the ten horns, let alone the three that will be put down by the little one, it is somewhat understandable to say that some of this has simply not come to pass yet. Okay, I think that is a legitimate option. But on the other hand, this approach does lack rigor, and it's also unfalsifiable, because what, what these are have yet to be revealed. And all you have to do is make up some imaginative scenarios of how things are going to be in the future, and presto, you're solving prophetic riddles. Now, that doesn't mean that the approach is wrong, but it is extremely speculative. And the amount of confidence that some Christians place in these scenarios is, in my opinion, troubling, given what it does to our public witness, right, to Christ, like the Christians are so sure about these, you know, these end-time scenarios, and given that many Christians will vote based on these, um, and even champion pu public policies based on these. Um, and that's a very big matzo ball, to, to quote uh, Seinfeld, uh, to have hanging out. Given that those who do are putting a lot of confidence in a very spec in very speculative interpretations of some of the most difficult and esoteric parts of Scripture, so there's my little soapbox. You need to be careful with that stuff. So, what do I think of this fourth beast? Again, Rome is a possibility, as long as one accepts that it does no better than the others in IDing the ten horns, the other options, right? Uh, the three that are put down, or the little horn that rises up. Uh, but what, what if there is a slice of history that fits remarkably well with the story of the little horn, and that becomes extraordinarily important to the Jewish people? And in fact, there is. So following the death of Alexander the Great, as I said earlier in discussing the leopard's four heads, his empire is divided into four parts among his generals. Antipater, Lysimachus, Ptolemy I, and Seleucus I, the latter of which forms what is known as the Seleucid Empire. 
Uh, though its size ebbed and flowed, uh, the Seleucid Empire stretched from southern Turkey in the north as far west as Greece, encompassing all of Mesopotamia all the way up to India on the east, and most importantly, the Levant, including Judah. The ninth ruler of the Seleucid dynasty was a king named Antiochus IV, known in Greek as Antiochus Ha Epiphanes, which is Antiochus the Magnificent, who rules from 175 to 164 BC. So he's kind of the guy in charge of Judah, Judah Judea at, during that time. And for reasons we can't be exactly sure of, he was particularly aggressive against the Jewish part population in Judea. I mean, he's pretty gracious to a lot of other parts of the empire, but he kind of becomes the arch enemy of the Jewish people uh, during this time. He sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem and then took its blood and sprinkled it throughout the temple and on a copy of the scriptures there. He put out the menorah. He forced the high priest to eat pig. He outlawed circumcision, sacrifice, and Sabbath observance. He erected what was either an altar or a statue to Zeus in the temple. And all of this triggers what's known as the Maccabean Revolt. This is the stuff that's covered in the books of Maccabees. Uh, during his reign, he sacks Jerusalem twice, torturing and killing tens of thousands of Jewish people. Uh, and and to, cut, to make a long story short, 2 Maccabees 9 portrays his death as an affliction caused by God. Here's, here's some of what it says. He who only a little while before had thought in his superhuman arrogance that he could command the waves of the sea and had imagined that he could weigh the high mountains in a balance was brought down to earth and carried in a litter, making the power of God manifest to all. And so the ungodly man's body swarmed with worms, and while he was still living in anguish and pain, his flesh rotted away, and because of the stench, the whole army felt revulsion at his decay. You're welcome if you're eating lunch while listening to this. Okay, um, so my suggestion <laughs> is that the fourth beast represents the Seleucid Empire and the little horn represents Antiochus IV. Uh, regarding the ten horns, three of which are put down, well, uh, perhaps we could say that this view shares the difficulty that all other views share. And no, and to my knowledge, none of them have really solved it satisfactorily. Like ten kings, three are put down, and one, um, you know, the little horn rises uh, among, it, among them. Among the Seleucid rulers, Antiochus IV is the ninth ruler in that dynasty. However, interestingly, he did overcome three relatives who were all a challenge to his right to the throne. And remember, that little horn puts down three of the other horns. Uh, moreover, John Walton, in an article he wrote in the 80s, uh, has observed that roughly, this that roughly at this time, Alexander's former empire was composed of 10 different independent states— Armenia, Bactria, Bithynia, Cappadocia, Egypt, Macedon, Parthia, Pergamum, Pontus, and Seleucia. Um, however, so that's that's interesting for the ten horns. However, in all honesty, to the position that I favor, this one, 
Uh, it does fall short of being a knockdown argument in favor of Antiochus, since many of these um, many of these states fall under territory held by the successors of the other three generals who divided Alexander's empire. But so that's what I think about the fourth beast. Now, as for chapter eight, as I said, I believe the ram with two horns represents the Medo-Persian empire. Uh, and the male goat then would represent the Macedonian Greek empire with its one conspicuous horn being Alexander the Great. And as I said, the interpretation of this in chapter eight more or less says all of this. Uh, so the goat right? The Macedonian empire defeats the ram, the Medo-Persian empire, breaking its horns. And when the goat's one horn breaks, okay, so the goat who's the vic victor now, four grow up in its place toward the four winds of heaven. And as I said, these would be the uh, Alexander's kingdom divided among his four generals. Uh, then the one little horn, as with the fourth beast of chapter seven, is Antiochus IV, as I understand this, and some of the details of what he did are given in verses 10 and 11. He grew great even to the host of heaven. And, verse 11, even as uh, great as the prince of the host, which I would say is another way of referring to God. Um, and some of the host and some of the stars he threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Okay, we, could sh we should be familiar with that kind of biblical imagery by now, right? The um, basically like really up, up. Uh, upending the, the social order. Uh, the regular burnt offering was taken away from God, and the sanctuary was overthrown. And he did this, verse 14 says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings before the sanctuary was restored. Now, interestingly, that number yields about six years and four months, which sounds very much, much like it could be the length of time that transpired between the killing of the Jewish high priest Onius III in 170 and the end of Antiochus's reign in 164. Okay. Uh, now, I want to mention two other details. Okay. Uh, the first is so we just talked about that period of 2,300 evenings and mornings. Well, that's one of two uh, very significant uh, time lengths that are given here. And so I do want to mention what is mentioned in uh, chapter 7, verse 25, where it talks about the war that the horn is making against the saints of the Most High, you know, wearing them out, changing the times and the law. And it says, they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Okay, uh, this is, will be picked up, this time frame will be picked up again in the Bible, we will, um, and, and it'll be a lot in, um, in Revelation. But just thinking about what that is, right, a time is one, times is two, and half a time. So one plus two plus a half equals three and a half. So it's another way of saying three and a half. So three and a half in a lot of apocalyptic literature um, is kind of like a, all goes back to this. It's, it's, it's reusing this description of three and a half, okay? Okay. Um, if you want to make that into a, a length of time, okay, so you got 12 months um, times three and a half, okay, equals 42 months. So it's a period of 42 months. And given that the months are 30 days long, that yields another figure that also features very prominently in the book of Revelation, and that is 1,260 days. So that's another way of saying 
a time times and half a time. And three and a half years, well, the typical time, although the priest is killed earlier than this, the, the actual time of like the war between Antiochus and the, the Jewish population, the Jewish revolt there under the Maccabees, is 167 to 64. So that kind of becomes like symbolic for this time of trial and tumult, okay? Three and a half. The other thing that I briefly wanted to mention here, um, actually, I guess, yeah, I'll mention this and then one final observation, um, is the figure of the Son of Man here. Now, if you've been following this podcast for a while, you know that this is the chapter where Jesus... Um, um, gets his uh, fav favorite designation for himself. He calls himself the Son of Man. No big shocker there, right? He tells, like, the high priest, you'll see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven, for example. Like, it's definitely, that's what he means by when he's talking about the Son of Man. Um, now, Son of Man, so you've got these two visions of, like, uh, I guess we could say heaven, Right? You've got the Ancient of Days seated on the throne, and it's a scene of judgment. The books are opened and everything. There's fire issuing forth from the throne. Um, and then uh, he sees one like a son of man, which technically, if you're just reading the language, just means a human being. So like a human being, but riding on the clouds. Okay, Now, who in the Old Testament rides on the clouds? Uh, just to name a few, Psalm 104.3, Isaiah 19.1, the Lord does. So this is a human figure, but there's all, but he's portrayed in ways that are partake of divinity, we might say, okay? And it is to this son of man that dominion is given, the kingdom, that the peoples, nations, and languages, remember that from earlier in Daniel, should serve him. The dominion is everlasting. It will not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed, okay? And Daniel is very emphatic about that, Um uh, in, including, um, including like at the end of chapter seven, when the, the, the stuff is being, um, uh, is being explained, uh, right? So God judges that horn and then the dominion is given to this son of man. Now, interestingly in this chapter, uh, so if you look, if you're in chapter seven, take a look at verse 18, it says, well, let's do 17 and 18. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. We already know that, right? Uh, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Okay? So, and this is a, the part of the explanation of this vision. Notice there that the who receives it? An individual? No, it sounds like it's the saints. It's, it's, it's collective, right? And then go to verse 27. The kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints most high, and his kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Now, I thought this is supposed to be an individual here. I thought this is supposed to be Jesus, right? But here it's, it, it, it's the saints of the most high. It's, 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 it's God's people in general. And I think what you have here is a similar thing that we saw in the servant songs of Isaiah. And if you remember there, um, initially, for several of the servant songs, it's clearly a collective thing, right? Like, it's clearly the servant is Israel. It's Jacob, my son. In fact, it's, it's, there's even, like, negative things that are said, like that he fails, um, who is blind like my servant. Um, and, uh, and what happens 
is that Jesus then embodies the role that the entire nation is supposed to play, okay? So Israel kind of does what it is she is appointed to do, but then fails miserably at it, and Jesus succeeds where they fail and kind of becomes the one through whom this messianic, uh, eschatological um, energy and <laughs> the, the one in whom all these themes kind of culminate, okay? So, again, if you're asking, is the Son of Man an individual or is it a group of people? The answer is, very snarkily, yes, <laughs> okay? Uh, it, but it is Jesus, but it's Jesus as as an embodiment of the one who's really going to do it. Because by the time you get down to Jesus's day, right, like part of it, like the Jews ultimately do survive, and Antiochus is, you know, being eaten by worms. But you know, where does that get them? Do they actually receive this everlasting dominion? Do they actually receive this kingdom that shall not pass away? No, and that's why you have such like this big tension of when is. When are these things going to be fulfilled by the time Jesus steps on the scene? So that's how I think that that works. Now, the final thing that I just want to mention here is I've noted, I've asked a couple times, do we need to say that the four beasts, uh, the kingdoms represented by the four beasts, are the same as the statue in chapter uh, in chapter two? And you remember there that I uh, said, you know, although again I, I could be wrong about this, and so loosely I hold that that is Babylon, uh, Medo-Persia, um, uh, Macedonian Empire under Alexander the Great, and then Rome. So the the feet, the, the legs and feet of iron are Rome. Whereas here, I rejected the Roman view, uh, again, tentatively, and suggest that that fourth beast is actually um, uh, the, 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 the Seleucid Empire. Uh, so does that require me to say the same thing? I don't think so. Um, because if you compare chapters seven and eight, one thing that you may have noted, okay, is that the third and the fourth beasts are actually compressed into the ram, uh, sorry, into the goat. Okay. So the bear and the, um, and the, uh, ram represent the Medo-Persian empire. And I think a very strong case could be made for that. But but it is the leopard beast and the fourth beast that are combined to form the goat. Okay, so I don't. So there you have like different metaphors, be different. So the different visions, in other words, don't exactly have this one on one one to one correspondence. So I do think it's acceptable to say that there is a di that that we don't necessarily need to say that just because you have four successive kingdoms. Um, represented in two different visions in Daniel, they have to be the exact same thing. But if I had to, if if I was really compelled to say, yes, they are the same thing, then I would change my interpretation of the statue of chapter two, because I do feel a lot more confident about my interpretation of chapters seven and eight. And with that, <laughs> let's go on now to 1 John. Um, we are in chapter two, verses 12 through 17. So he begins by saying, I'm writing to you, and he says this a bunch of times. What does he say? Five times. And then he addresses them. I'm writing to you, little children. I'm writing to you, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. And the uh, question is like, 
it, does he mean like specific age groups? Like, is it literally like, okay, here's adult Sunday school, here's, you know, maybe uh, student ministry, and here's children's Sunday school? And I would say I don't think so, because notice you have six designations here, okay? And if you divide them into two, so you get three and three, you got children, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. Now, to be fair, in Greek, those two children are different words. The first is technia, and then the second one at the end of verse 13 is paideia. But both pretty much mean children. And I don't think there's a hard, fast difference, although maybe correct me if you know ancient Greek better than I do, um, and there are many, I'm sure, who do. But um, And children, both of those words for children, are ways that he addresses the entire congregation. So in 2.1, he calls them technia. And then in 2.18, he calls them paideia, uh, so, uh, you know, which is in today's reading. Um, so I think, basically, you know, this is a way of addressing everybody. And then, um, basically, both young and old. So children, both the fathers and the young men. Children, both the fathers and the young men. I think that's how it is. So, uh, and it's a bit of a poetic-ish type section, right? I'm writing to you, I'm writing to you, I'm writing you, and here we go. Why am I writing to you? Uh, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Um, because you know him who is from the beginning, that is, the Father, right? Because you've overcome the evil one. Uh, because uh, you know the Father, and because you know him who is from the beginning, so note those are all just ways of referring to their status that they have in Christ. And he's writing to them because of that, because he knows that what he is saying will be beneficial to them because of their salvation, because of what God has done in their life. And uh, he, he also has confidence that they will be responsive because of that, because of what God has made them. So he gives them the instructions, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, again, we have to be careful with the language of John, because taken one way, you could say, well, aren't, aren't we supposed to love people that we, you know, people are in the world, right? No, you always have to ask, like, well, what exactly does he mean by that? That's why, especially in First in John, but in a couple places in the Gospel of John as well, you just have to be careful um, to not make too much of the language, if that's what, it, if that makes sense. Like, if you were just to, like, milk the world for all it's worth, you could just say, like, okay, well, I guess this is just pie-in-the-sky mentality. I don't even love my wife whom I'm commanded to love. No, no, no. Like, you could clearly take the language too far. It's always, like, contextually informed, informed by what's already been said, informed by other parts of Christian theology. That's part of the fun of reading John's stuff, but it's, you know, you have to be a little bit careful. By the way, that does influence maybe one's interpretation of John 3.16, for God so loved the world, but I digress there. But so, do not love the world or the things in the world. Here, it's clearly like the things that the world loves. Do not love um, a worldly status, your standing in the world, the things that the world goes after, right? Like, we can we can talk about for a little bit, like what would be included in the things that we should not love about the world. Um, so he's very concerned with where their hearts are, uh, because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. It's almost like what Jesus says, you, you cannot serve two masters. Um, so either you can love the world or you can love the Father. 
um, for all that is in the world. And here is exactly what he means by this. Now, this is not exactly all that the world in this passage encompasses, but this is why it's bad uh, to love the world. Um, that is, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, okay? All that stuff is bad. That wages war against our souls, and right? That's what makes it difficult to walk with the Lord, those things. Uh, desires of the flesh, desires of what I see, um, and pride, right? Those things make it very difficult to walk with God. And, and it is helpful to reflect on those things, because we don't I don't know, but like some of these things, like obviously some of the desires of my eyes, like, I, all right, I know that's not of God. And every time I do it, right, every time I succumb to it, I, I know it doesn't take long for me to realize that I'm doing wrong and I'm desiring something I should not. I'm coveting. Um, but pride, <clears throat> that's a tricky one, right? Because like how, like um, being proud I mean, there are appropriate things to be proud of. Paul talks about being proud of the work that Christ has accomplished through him, proud of his work in the Lord, right? But being on guard against pride, that I think is something that's a lot more sinister and sometimes difficult to see. Um, and uh, But the, the reasons, there's essentially two reasons that he gives here why we should not, uh, we need to not love the world. Um, and the one is because those things are not from the Father. Wherever those things are coming from, you're not getting them from God, which I think plays interestingly into the conversation about whether or not God tempts us to sin, makes us sin, things like that, right? Which, of course, James addresses as well. But here, you know, those things are not from God, um, these desires that you have um, or the pride that you feel like having. So that's one reason why you shouldn't love the world. The other is, as he says here, is that the world is passing away along with its desires, okay? So it's temporal. It will not always be here. There will be a day when these things don't even exist anymore, let alone are going to be something that tempts you towards them. But do you want something that endures? Well, then do the will of God, because whoever does the will of God abides forever. Um, now, again, he says the world is passing away along with its desires. So is he saying that the desires themselves pass away, um, that, you know, you won't always have them? Or is he saying the things that you desire will pass away? And I think, you know, both are obviously true. Um, okay, uh, verse 18, children, here it is again, right, addressing them as paideia. Children, it is the last hour, okay? And remember, we've talked about how the New Testament envisions this last phase of redemptive history as the last days, last hour, etc. Um, and as you have heard, okay, and indeed Jesus warned us about false prophets, think of, for example, Matthew 24, 11, that Antichrist is coming, okay, now that word, specific word, is only used in the Old Testament, uh, elsewhere in this letter, in, in 2.22, as well, as we'll see, down in today's reading, actually, um, in 4.3, and then also in 2 John 7. Um, so that is this concept of Antichrist. Again, we kind of touched on that in Daniel a little bit, right? Like, is that little horn the Antichrist? And uh, particularly as we work through Revelation, I think we'll have a little bit more of a full-orbed view of that. Like, um, uh, if, for example, if Antiochus the fourth, for example, is... 
uh, that little horn, does that mean that there's no one else that's going to be like that, no one else to whom that prophecy applies? Again, Revelation, I think we'll get into some of that. But, um, but yeah, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, okay? So now many Antichrists have come. And here, I think, is a very, the very helpful place where we see the distinction between big A Antichrists, uh, big A Antichrist, and little a Antichrists. So throughout this book, throughout 1 John, he will be talking essentially about what characterizes Antichrists, um, uh, those who deny the truth of the gospel, those who deny key truths about God, those who um, do not love one another, things like that, right? Um, that is against Christ, Antichrist. But notice also that he does say Antichrist is coming. And here is, uh, you know, this is, I think, 2 Thessalonians 2, some of the stuff that Paul says there. Remember, I gestured towards this as well. But I do think that it is biblical to say that there is or will be an individual in human history who is kind of like the ultimate embodiment of satanic power and evil. And here is an example of where I think that is, right? Antichrist is coming, and antichrists have come. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that that is a legitimate thing. Again, there, the, even within that, there's various ways to see that, uh, because one could say that um, there's a manifestation of what we might call an antichrist uh, spirit, Right? in every age and in many different places? Um, or, like, are we necessarily looking for, like, an individual around the end times that fits the bill? Um, it's harder to say. I mean, you, the Bible obviously can accommodate that view, um, but there are other ways to look at it as well. Um, but because of people opposed to the truth, notice here, therefore, because we've seen people against us, we know that it is the last hour, because again, remember Jesus is teaching about what this final hour looks like. It looks like false prophets arising. It looks like wars and rumors of wars. And so we see that, and yep, this is that that hour that Jesus spoke of. Um, and they um, so in speaking of these little a antichrists, again, here's part of their profile. They went out from us. So these ones were originally part of the Christian community, but they were not of us. And here is, again, that whenever we talk about like a, the reality of apostasy, and I've mentioned this a bunch of times, this idea of uh, true faith is faith that by nature perseveres. Notice how this verse says it. They, went, they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, okay? Because remember how important like fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father, for example, one chapter 1, verse 3. So they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. So they, they were never really of us, but it just wasn't clear when they were here. But the fact that they went out confirmed that they were not of us. Again, I think the idea is you're talking about people who never really embraced the truth in the first place. And sometimes it is difficult to tell, you know, who will that be? Or, you know, you don't always know who's going to fall away. Um, and that does inform the way that we should view our own perseverance and the way we view our own uh, security. But then he says, but then, but you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. So God's anointing. So this anointing that used to be only on priests, only on kings, um, on Christ, right, to some extent, um, applies to all of us as well. 
So you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. And so here he says again, I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Again, he expects them to be able to be, to be saying amen to what he's saying. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? So here would be a good example of uh, that, that antichrist characteristic that we're seeing here. He denies Jesus is the Messiah, is the idea. And that's what he is calling here a liar, okay? But then you have another category— this is the Antichrist. So you've got liar, denies Jesus as the, the Messiah, and then Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Now, what does he mean by this? Does he mean like he rejects, he's just like an atheist or something? Um, I mean, obviously, that would fall under that category. Um, but notice how he explains it. He says, no one who denies the Son has the Father. So the idea, I think, is you deny the, and then kind of like as like a, a single entity, the Father and the Son, okay? The, the concept that there is God the Father and, and God the Son, or even maybe even a, a, a less, less uh, deity of Christ-ish, right? The, the Father and his Son is truly Jesus. Um, uh, because the idea is, is you, if you do, you do not have the Father if you deny the Son, which definitely speaks to other religions, especially of the Abrahamic faith. Let's take like Islam or Judaism or something. And sometimes people will be like, oh, well, they are worshiping God. No, you don't have the Father if you don't have the Son. You might not be as far away as like a Mormon who thinks that like everybody's going to be a God or like a, a Hindu who thinks like polytheism. Of course, we shouldn't assume who's close and who's far. Maybe some, um, you know, some are closer than 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 those whom we would expect to be close. But I'm just saying that, like, just because one claims to worship the God at God at like some point in biblical revelation does not mean they truly know God. If you at this point, God having done what he's done and revealed himself in Christ, if you do not have Christ, you don't have God at all. You're not true, you're not worshiping the true God. Um it, it's it's almost like um if I only love my wife and I only know my wife up until she's 25 years old, but then, but now she's 35 and I got like, I totally reject that. I, everything she's done. Like, do you really know your wife? Like, <laughs> you know, I don't, I, um, it's just, it's, it's kind of like that. Um, whoever confesses the son though, has the father also. So that's the obverse. If you deny the Son, you don't have the Father, but if you confess the Son, then you have the Father. He is the way to know God, Jesus. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Notice the Johannine gospel language there. Abide in me, right? I am the vine, you are the branches. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. And he finally says, another, I write these things. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So he has false teaching in view. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Now, of course, here he does not mean, I mean, this letter is itself teaching, right? He's not saying that you just, all Christians have to worry about now is their own spirit-led intuition. And that's, don't worry about, like, you know, no, no. Teachers is a role in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 12, 28 through 29, 2 Timothy 1, 11, Ephesians 4, 1. It's all over the place. This is 
this is like hyperbolic language, right? That that you don't need these guys, these those who are trying to deceive you to come in and to teach you new things just for the sake of hearing new things or like they're going to significantly add to your understanding about God. No, you don't need these guys to teach you. Uh, but as his anointing teaches you about everything, right, that anointing you have from being joined to us and what we have taught you and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him, remain in him. Well, that's a good place to leave off today. And uh, again, another one of these lengthy episodes, but I'm actually glad it wasn't longer given that we did Daniel 7 and 8 today. So um, golf clap for myself. But um, thank you for sticking with me. And uh, as always, I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.